morning. Happy Father's Day to all the baby daddies out there. Um, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for bringing the church into this makeshift auditorium this morning. Excited that you guys are with us. Thanks to the dads for not going out and playing a round of golf, but rather joining the church gathered this morning. Hopefully you'll, you'll benefit from that as well as your entire family. Um, as James mentioned just a, a couple minutes ago, uh, we recently ventured into a new series entitled The Nine Virtues where uh, we are taking a look at Galatians 5, uh, Paul's laying out of the fruit of the Spirit, namely love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and we're talking about uh, what that means, what that looks like, how, how do we do that, why should we be about the endeavor of cultivating the character of Christ uh, we unashamedly believe that, that salvation doesn't come through the cultivation of character, but rather by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person and work of Jesus alone. And, and yet, where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that uh, every, uh, from every gospel root comes gospel fruit. And so uh, we want to talk about what that means. What does it mean to, to walk in step with the Spirit of God? What does that even mean? What does that even look like? If you missed the first week of this series, uh, a couple weeks back, I'd encourage you to go online and, and take a listen. Uh, we talked about the fact that, that those who love and follow Jesus and desire to cultivate the character of Jesus, that, that that comes by, one, trusting the Holy Spirit to bring that work to its completion. So there's a dependence upon a trusting in the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. But it's not a, a passive uh, dependence. We talked about the fact that cultivating the character of Jesus comes as we abide in Jesus, as we spend time with him, as we fix our gaze upon him. It has a way of, of changing us, uh, which is what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, that it's in abiding that we actually become more like the one that we fix our eyes upon. It also comes through the killing of the old self, that we know that uh, the old self, the sinful nature, received its death blow on the cross, and now we help it toward its final breath by daily driving the nail deeper into it. We, we drive the spear a, a little deeper into its side until it breathes its final breath. We don't help the sinful nature off of the cross, which is oftentimes our inclination, but rather we treat it the way Jesus was treated on his cross. But lastly, it's not just about killing the old self. It's about breathing life into the new self, this idea of of keeping in step with the Spirit's leading, which is uh, simply through the ordinary means of God's grace. It comes through spending time in the Scriptures, through spending time in prayer, time spent rubbing shoulders with other Christians, preaching the gospel to yourself, and, and so forth and so on, that one day at a time in the midst of the Christian community that God has graciously given us, we acknowledge our dependence on the Spirit, we abide in Jesus, we, we pound the nail a little deeper in the sinful nature, and we walk in step with the Spirit's leading through the ordinary means of God's grace. Last week, we took a look at a passage of Scripture having to do with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And this week, we'll take a look at a passage on, on joy and so forth and so on. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 13. We'll be in verse 44. Yes, you heard me rightly. One verse of Scripture this morning. And yet we won't get out for brunch. We will, we will go deep and it'll be a joyful experience because it's about the topic of joy. So 
no complaining. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you for free. Church's gift to you. We're excited for you to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Let me just pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll, we'll get going. God, I pray that this morning you would awaken hearts, you would awaken my heart to the beauty of Christ, to the supreme joy that is to be found in Christ Jesus, that you would awaken the hearts of your people in the same way. I pray that if there are any cultural nominal Christians in this room this morning, which is quite possible in our Bible Belt Southern context, that you would by the power of your spirit, bring before them the reality that uh, true faith has not yet been experienced, true joy has not yet been experienced, and that um, in the same way we'll see momentarily in this parable that like the man in the parable, they would see Christ as the supremely valuable treasure in all the universe this morning. For those who come in and declaratively don't love and follow you, Jesus, I pray the same thing, that there would be an awakening this morning, and that for those of us who do declare to follow you, uh, that we would see that walking in true joy is a daily miracle, God, of you continually over and over again awakening our hearts to your beauty, to your value, to your splendor. So would you do all of this this morning in our midst and as we leave this place by the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Now, I want to start with a distinction uh, that's been made within the Christian community, perhaps you've heard this before, that joy is something very different from happiness, that happiness is an emotion and it's temporary. Joy is a rooted, deeply rooted disposition of the heart. Did you know that 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 distinction between happiness and joy is, is a relatively new invention? That throughout church history, men like Spurgeon and Wesley, along with the Puritans and many others, use those two words interchangeably. In fact, if you study the scriptures, you find that uh, the biblical writers use words like joy, happiness, gladness, delight, and even blessing interchangeably. The, the, the Beatitudes, for those of you who are around when we went through the sermon series on the Beatitudes, the, the blessed are statements that come from Jesus' mouth uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or Blessed are the meek, or uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios, which can also be translated happy. And so Jesus could have said, happy are the meek. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the pure in heart. There is no passage of scripture that pits happiness against joy, as if one is shallow and fleeting and the other is Deeply rooted, as if happiness is uh, Joy's immature kid brother who just needs a good noogie because he's not quite as, as good as, as his older brother, Joy. For those who might say, well, happiness is an emotion, and, and emotions are, are fleeting. Well, what do you do with the fact that the very virtue found in Galatians 5 that precedes joy is love? And going back to last week, part of love is affection, and that doesn't make it shallow. Right? Think about it this way. When you throw out the phrase, and you probably don't use this every day unless you're just a complete Ned Flanders goofball, but 
when you throw out the phrase, what a bright, sunshiny day. Okay? You don't parse the words bright and sunshiny and try to determine all the distinctions between those two words, do you? They're used in tandem to communicate a truth, to paint a picture. To be bright is to be sunshiny, and to be sunshiny is to be bright. The same is true of the biblical use of joy, gladness, delight, happiness, and so forth and so on. So why do I bring that up? One, to try to diffuse a distinction that perhaps shouldn't be there in the first place, but also so that I can uh, speak openly and use these words interchangeably and, and hopefully not get martyred for you know, using them in ways that are less than helpful. And so um, what we're going to talk about this morning is in stride with a couple thousand years of good theology and biblical exegesis. And so my hope this morning is for us to be a people who are happy in God, who are glad in God, who delight in God, who find their joy in God. And, and I mean all of that to be synonymous terminology. So here we go, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All right, I want, I want you to get that picture in your mind. This is a parable from the lips of of Jesus, meant to, to teach us a, a lesson. On his journey, Jesus says, a man happens upon a treasure hidden in a field. That treasure represents King Jesus and his kingdom and his kingly rule. When you see the phrase kingdom of, of heaven, you don't have a kingdom without a king. In fact, the very character of the kingdom is a representation of the king who rules it. So the treasure in this parable is King Jesus and his kingdom and his kingly rule. And we're told upon seeing this treasure, this man in the parable covers it up and then consumed by joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Now, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to put ourselves in place of the man in the parable. I want you to picture yourself in this parable as if you were the main character, this man who stumbled upon this field. And what I want you to do is to ask the question of what took place in this man's life leading up to this moment in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. What is the typical human experience prior to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44? Here's what I think. We all long for joy, don't we? We all chase after it, even if we think it's elusive. Even if we've lost all hope of ever obtaining it, we grieve at the thought that we can't obtain it because it's something that we desire. We're hardwired to pursue joy, you might say. That people across the world are looking for it in a thousand different places, from the self-help section of the local bookstore to the next gadget to the next romantic interest to the next tax bracket to the next like on Facebook and so forth and so on. On and on we could go. I mean, aren't New Year's resolutions ultimately a response to a deficiency of joy in most people? If I can get this part of my life in order in 2016, then I'll be happy. I'm going to be a happier me in 2016, and here's how I'm going to do it. And if you're like me, you fall on your face before Valentine's Day ever rolls around, and you just get sad and frustrated. In many cases, it's happiness sought apart from God. C.S. Lewis, in his great work, Mere Christianity, says it this way. He says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, 
ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, and slavery. All of that is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That from the dawn of human existence, man has engaged in the futile chase of happiness apart from God. All the way back to the garden, going back to the the series prior to this sermon series, the story. The very first human being sought a happiness apart from God. That's the very essence of idolatry, is it not? This thing or this person can ultimately make me happy. Where does that longing come from? Why, Why are we so bound and determined to pursue our happiness? I think the answer is that we're hardwired to pursue our joy because we're made in the image of God who who is joy. God is perfectly happy in himself. God's been doing the happy dance since before the foundations of the world, and rightly so because he's perfect. He's filled with nothing but goodness and purity. How could he not be happy? And not only is God happy, God who is joy, who, who is happiness, determined that he would share his joy with us. That's crazy. That's the grace of God. That's the kindness of God. He's not a hoarder. Rather, he determined that joy would exist within the very fabric of the universe that you and I live in. That's why we long for so much joy. That's why we chase after happiness to its end. God didn't create us because he was deficient. God doesn't redeem people because he's deficient. He creates and redeems out of his fullness, which he loves to share with his people, with his image bearers. You can't help but long for happiness because you're, you're made in the image of a happy God. But again, in our depravity, we pursue happiness in a way that is oftentimes antagonistic to our very obtaining of it. Tony Ranke, in his book, The Joy Project, fantastic read, he says this, The greatest hazard we face is not intellectual atheism. Pay attention here. It's not denying that God exists. Our most desperate problem is affectional atheism. Refusing to believe God is the object of our greatest and most enduring joy. Think about that. How crazy to think that so many people view God as the enemy of pleasure, as an obstacle to joy. I'm not going to even entertain the idea of the Christian worldview because it's to rob me of my joy. How absurd when the reality is that God is the very object of true pleasure and joy in all the universe. Wrestle with this question for a moment. When you turn your eyes from God, what do you have left? And I mean that to be a very personal question. The answer is going to be very different for each of us in this room. When you turn your eyes from God, what do you have left? Where do your eyes then veer? Is it sex or money or power? Maybe words of affirmation? How many likes of that most recent Facebook post will it take to make you truly happy? And how long will that happiness last before the next post or the next picture must be put up on on Facebook? It's really a more socially acceptable heroin needle to the arm at times, isn't it? What's your pleasure? What is it that you're convinced will bring you true happiness? And and what if I told you that some in this room, some of us are clawing our way toward our own demise? Again, Ranke in his book says it this way, very helpful word picture. He says, the long trajectory of the human predicament is as a rock climber 
eyes scanning to find the next visible handhold, groping for something to satisfy our hearts. With each new hold, we increase the flame of lust in our hearts, propelling ourselves toward the summit of godless satisfaction. But, he says, the summit is false and the climb is futile. The end never arrives because the aim was wrong from the beginning. It was the wrong mountain. And all the while, with each step, we only increase the height from which eventually we will all fall. Can you relate to that at all? Do you find yourself groping for the next something or, or someone to satisfy your heart, to finally bring you the happiness that you've longed for for, for so, so long? But what if you're on the, the wrong mountain altogether? This is critical in a, in a culturally Christian context, in a nominal, nominally Christian context, where there are a lot of churches, but, but the gospel is, is less than saturating in our culture. Let me say it this way. There are thousands, maybe even millions of professing Christians in the world who are not born again, who are convinced that God loves them and are destined for hell maybe even existentially feeling like they're loved by God. This is a, this is a big deal, okay? I, I don't press on this every week, but this is critical in our context, that we, that we drive after this, that we go after it. You, you go, how, how in the world could that happen? Here's how that happens. It happens when you view conversion as having all the same deep-seated desires that you had prior to conversion, except now those desires are met by Jesus, Okay, let me give you a couple of examples. Hopefully this will be helpful. I've always wanted to fall in love. And I've searched here and there and, and everywhere and all the wrong places. And I've come up empty every time. But now I know that, that Jesus is the way. And so I sing with all of my heart to Jesus, knowing that he'll bring me someone. That's not the new birth. That's using Jesus to write the check for an idol. Which is why so many people, I think, walk away from the faith when Jesus refuses to write that check. You know people that that's their story? They were a part of the church, even professed to know and love and follow Jesus. And then there came that check that he wasn't willing to sign on the dotted line for whatever that thing was. And they turned away from the faith. Or Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're coming in and you're going, that's me right now. And I'm skeptical of Jesus as I sit in my very seat this morning. Another example, and I think this one hits maybe a little bit closer to home. I don't want to go to hell. And I've sought my escape in a number of ways, from this religion to, to that religion, to this form of spirituality, to this moralistic endeavor, and so forth and so on. And none of them is sufficient. But now I know that Jesus is the way. He's the way to get out of hell. He's my get-out-of-hell-free card. Let me ask a question. Does it take a regenerate heart to want to escape hell? Does it take a regenerate heart to want a pain-free, misery-free eternity? There are people all over the world who want that. And who are happy to have Jesus write the check for that future. And who would be perfectly content if Jesus was not the center of that future. John Piper says it this way. I find this to be helpful. Very sobering quote. He says, The new birth is not having the same meal and having a different butler. 
The new birth is not bringing all the things that you think will make you happy to the feet of Jesus and then expecting him to write the check for those things. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes pleasure, how he describes joy. Many of you have heard this quote before. It's from his great work, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. The, The new birth is not Jesus writing the check for more mud so that we can go on making more mud pies. That's not the Christian life. In the new birth, Jesus opens our eyes to see the mud for what it is and to see that we're clawing our way up the wrong mountain, to see Jesus himself as the greatest treasure in all the universe. Piper goes on to say, you are converted to Christ when Christ becomes for you a treasure chest of holy joy. I love that. And now the parable of the treasure hidden in the field makes sense doesn't it? You have a man who for God only knows how long has been groping after this thing and that thing, something to satisfy his heart. Maybe it'll be this. No, this failed me. Maybe it'll be that. No, that failed me. One fleeting joy after another. Am I ever going to find it? True happiness, true joy. It sickens me to think that I won't. I'm hardwired for true joy. And then, Jesus Isn't he glorious? Isn't he supremely valuable? Isn't he compellingly beautiful? And then we're told that he begrudgingly sells everything he has, right? Wrong. We're told that in his joy, he sells everything that he has in order to buy that field. He's been given a glimpse of the most supremely valuable treasure in all the world. And all of a sudden, everything else looks like rubbish, In comparison, let me say this. No one grumbles his or her way into the kingdom. A person is happy to end the empty chase for lesser pleasures and joy when true conversion takes place. If you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, that's what happened. You may not be able to pinpoint it with the same precision as the guy in the parable. Maybe your story is really muddy like mine. But somewhere along the way, you realize that infinite joy is found in in Jesus You got a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of his beauty, a glimpse of his worth. And you declared everything else to be rubbish in comparison to gaining Christ. And in that moment, going back to last week, not only were you drawn up into the eternal dance of Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, spirit, the, the fellowship and love of the Trinity, but you were drawn up into the eternal joy of Father, Son, and Spirit. So let me ask you, have you experienced the new birth? I think that's critical for us to wrestle with. Is Jesus supremely valuable to you? The fountain of true joy? Or is he a means, a stepping stone to obtaining that which you think can make you truly happy? By his blood, the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ bought for us the gift of everlasting joy in God. And now... As Christians, if you are a Christian, we pursue our happiness in God with all of our might. 
What what does it mean to, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in stride with the Spirit as it pertains to joy? Most certainly it means to trust that the Spirit will continue that work in us to see Christ as supremely valuable. Again, there's a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Paul's helpful in Romans 15, 13. He says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy. So God is tasked with that. He's going to bring that work to completion with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Think not that Christ has merely put joys within our reach that we may get for ourselves, but he comes and puts the joys inside our hearts. Last week we talked about the fact that God is love and God the Spirit indwells you. But God is also joy, which means that the joy radiating spirit of God has taken up permanent residency within you. That's incredibly encouraging. And so we trust, we depend upon the Spirit, and alongside the Spirit, we fight. It's a passion war. The the goal of Christianity, if you've heard this, I'm sorry, because it's, it's a lie. The goal of Christianity is not to put passion to death. The goal of Christianity is not to to trade passion and desire for passionless indifference, to exchange passion and desire for boredom and domestication. I've given this example before, and I'll give it again because I think it's it's helpful. Uh, We're now almost a decade back to when I proposed to my wife on Jacksonville Beach, and I want to take you through what it could have looked like. Can you tell me how this would have gone? If I got down on one knee and held the ring up in her face and said, Brooks, honey, we've been dating for a few years. I'm not getting any younger. I don't think I've got another shot at this thing. We put so much relational equity into into this thing already that it seems kind of dumb not to continue on. So, baby, will you be mine forever? Will you marry me? Right? How do you think that's going to go? Horrifically at best, right? She might be uh, caught up and enamored in the the shiny trinket that I just put in front of her, but that's about the best thing that's going to happen in that moment. Why? Because no one feels honored when you talk that way. No one feels made much of when you talk that way. Rather, it sounds a lot different to say, nothing makes me happier than to make you happy, to think about making you happy for the rest of my life. You know what she's not going to say in that moment? Nothing makes you happier, selfish. No, I'm not going to marry you. There's something about our joy and God's glory that are deeply intertwined with one another. The Christian life is not a a begrudging submission. That's not what the Christian life is about. God is not honored when, when we come begrudgingly to him. The hope of true joy is not found in the suppressing of of affections. We we need our affections continually awakened to the superior joy found in Jesus. And it's a miracle that happens over and over and over and over and over and over again in the hearts of the saints. Because our hearts are like pinball machines, aren't they? They just bounce all over the place. We deeply need a miracle to happen in our hearts over and over and over again constantly. It's the daily declaration, God, help me to see mud pies for what they are, lesser joys, fleeting lesser pleasures, and help me to see eternal pleasures for what they are. Another way we could say it is to say that 
our greatest joy problem is our failure to treasure God. And thus our greatest need is a continual awakening to his worth, to his beauty, to his radiance, to his splendor. You go, how does that practically happen? Again, we've been talking about it for a couple weeks now. This is going to bum those of you out who really want some sort of rocket science answer to this. It happens through the ordinary means of God's grace. It happens through time in the scripture, the very revelation of the person and work of Jesus. It happens by sitting under the preached word of God as Jesus is made much of week in and week out. It happens through the sacrament of communion as we celebrate and remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. It happens through time in prayer, talking to the, the most supremely valuable being in all of the universe. It happens through time spent with other Christians, brushing shoulders with those who have a joy rooted in Jesus. It happens through preaching the gospel to yourself, meditating on and declaring all that God is for you in Christ. And it happens by walking in obedience. There's, there's no greater joy crusher than sin because sin kills intimacy with God. The reality is, and this is absolutely true of me, you and I, we're the greatest enemy of our own joy most days, if we're honest. But because we allow ourselves to be distracted by trinkets when treasure is within our reach. Self-denial, it's really not the worst thing when you think of it as forsaking tin in order to obtain gold, as one theologian once put it. That's the kind of awakening that the man in the parable experienced. Who needs all this rubbish? I get Jesus. And he's not just a Sunday school answer. He's the most supremely valuable being in all the universe. The fight for joy is the daily fight to see Jesus as supremely valuable, as the treasure hidden in a field. Let me close out with this thought this morning. My guess is that there are some in this room who are experiencing great sorrow even as you come into this place. Grief, hurt, pain. And that's definitely the case for some of my closest friends down in Orlando right now. What do you do with that sorrow? Well, I can tell you this for sure. The Christian life is not a life of manufactured feelings. It's not an Ikea life. You don't just muster up the right feelings in the right moment. Right? We do that all the time, don't we? Roll up the windows, lock the car doors, come into the context of the church gathered and turn on that face, whatever that thing is. Um, muster up the right emotion, the right feeling in, in the moment. That's not the Christian life. Sorrow is real. Hurt is real. Pain is real. Grief is real. Those who sell Christianity as a means by which you can escape those things, well, that's a false bill of goods. All you have to do to expose that lie is to look at the lives of the disciples, Right? John 16, Jesus tells the disciples that his death is going to bring them great sorrow. But, he says, I will see you again. He's talking about his resurrection. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So we may be inclined to read that and go, okay, so Jesus is going to resurrect. And then it's just all joy. No inner, inner mingling of sorrow or pain or grief. But let me ask you, did the disciples go on to live sorrow-free lives? Pain-free lives? Sadness-free, suffering-free lives? No, most of them were martyred for the sake of the gospel, right? 
Romans 5.3, this is why Paul tells us to rejoice in our sufferings. Sorrow is real. Suffering is real. Those who belittle Christians for experiencing sorrow, give me a break, man. That's a complete missing of the whole thing. There's a reason that the Apostle John declares in the last chapter of the Bible, we looked at it a few weeks ago, he says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Because our hearts are fickle, they're tempted to grab hold uh, of uh, the, the treasure that's ours for the taking at times, but to grab hold of lesser joys at times as well. The world is not as it should be, as the Orlando tragedy makes crystal clear. But John says, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when everything sad will come untrue. When Jesus will return and the joys of our hearts will be set ablaze, never to flicker again. Every tear will have no choice but to be wiped away. That's incredible. And until then, we fight by the power of the Spirit to be happy in God, the source of everlasting joy. For the Christian, the hurt and sorrow prove the inexhaustibility of joy in Christ. Though the Christian's joy may be tested, it can never be fully extinguished by sorrow or circumstance. I love, this is my favorite quote of the morning. I love how Spurgeon says it. He says this. He says, Our joy no man takes from us. We are singing pilgrims, though the way be rough. Amid the ashes of our pains live the sparks of our joys, ready to flame up when the breath of the Spirit sweetly blows. Our latent happiness, he says, is a choicer heritage than the sinner's riotous glee. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Is Jesus your treasure? In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to take communion this morning, I would invite you just to spend time with Jesus, asking him to reveal to you lesser fleeting joys that have maybe taken uh, his place on the throne of your life. If you are a Christian, as you experience that human pinball thing that happens with the the human heart in, in its fickleness, I would invite some of us in this room to wrestle with the question, am I on the wrong mountain altogether? Have I been declaring uh, to be a Christian and completely missing it all the while? During the last couple songs, if you want to talk about any of this stuff, I'll be in the back of the auditorium. would love to connect with you. If we can't handle it here, set up a time to grab coffee or or, uh, lunch or something together and, and talk about this. Because we planted this church when we planted it with the idea of putting a massive dent in this idea known as cultural nominal Christianity. Um, This walking dead thing that happens. You don't have to drive to uh, the the set of the show to see the walking dead in our context. Just look around. It's all over the place. People who profess to love and follow Jesus, who who just are completely missing Matthew 13, 44 altogether. So my prayer is even this morning that there's a dent being put 
in, in whatever that, that weird thing is that's happening in our context. So that Christ might be treasured. So that we might stop chasing after those fleeting joys and groping after things that can't satisfy like he can. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.